Welcome to another episode of Blood, Sweat and Fears, the podcast where those that either participate or have participated in elite sport share their experiences, good and bad, in pursuit of medals and titles, and in some cases, survival and salvation. I'm Mark Clement, and alongside me is Scott Ward, a former professional footballer and the man behind EY's personal performance programme, Building a Better Working World. And on this episode, we're in the company of a former England international footballer who has very quickly transitioned into one of the country's top media pundits. He played for Nottingham Forest, Newcastle United, Spurs, Aston Villa and QPR and was capped 21 times by England. As we see him or hear him on BBC TV and radio, it's easy to think that his journey into retirement has been pretty seamless. But what has life after football really been like for Jermaine Genus? Well, you've made your own transition look pretty darn seamless from the outside. What has it been like from the inside, Jay? It's definitely not been seamless. Um, What I would say is kind of the path that I've kind of got myself onto now, it wasn't planned at all, which was, uh, you know, part of it, the the part of it that was very difficult, uh, weirdly enough. I think the day that um, I kind of knew that I was going to have to retire. I suppose when I take myself back to that exact day when I did my knee and I walked into the house and I spoke to my wife and my mum and it was a really sad day. My mum's followed my whole career, you know, from the age of like, when I say my whole career, I mean, she took me to every single game when I was like seven years old and I saw the look in her eyes and it was just pure heartbreak. Um, And it still hurts her. You know, she's so proud of where I am now, don't get me wrong, but, you know, the fact that I'm not playing football, you know, it does kind of... Um, it, it weighs heavy on her, on her I, I would say. But and did you feel you'd let her down ever so slightly, even though there's nothing you can do about physicality? Um, not really. I think, you know, I, I knew that pretty early on in my career, um, even when I moved to Newcastle, that I probably, you know, surpassed anything that she you know, ever dreamt that I would, you know, get to, you know, playing for England, Champions League football, you know, getting to the top, really, of, of the sport. And, you know, I think that was all that she ever wanted uh, for me. But kind of that moment, obviously, what I was just referring to, kind of months down the line uh, after that, obviously I had to go through the operation. I, was, I had a bed in my uh, in my living room, an opera, like a, a hospital bed, basically my living room, watching the, I think it was the World Cup in Brazil. And, uh, you know, my little girls would come and get in the bed with me and we'd watch the football. It, it was, you know, but I was pretty down at that time. I was very kind of like disheartened with where my life was going to go, what I was going to do next. Um, thankfully, at that point, I think Five Live, BBC Five Live, wanted me to go to Brazil to do some stuff. Obviously, I couldn't do it with the state of my knee, but it was a glimpse for me, a little, you know, a little glimmer of hope in terms of actually, maybe, maybe this is something I can get my teeth into whilst I'm... Um, recuperating now uh the minute i the minute i officially kind of said right i'm going to give this a go it was it was okay bits and bobs were were coming in i think one of the biggest moments for me and this is what i say to a lot of ex-players now i weird enough i get a lot of you know phone calls from pros who are still in the game kind of worried about that that moment uh, in terms of having to retire and um one of the biggest pieces of advice that I'll always give them is, you know, I, I know footballers inside out and I, and I know they're very close to their football agents, but I personally kind of quite quickly understood as much as my football agent was, was great for me and he was, he was he's a top guy and he was getting me as much work as possible. I wasn't at the forefront of his mind at that point. You know, he had his, his job to do and I respected that. And I just thought, well, I, I, if I want to take this serious, this kind of media world, I'm going to need 
a talent agent that can that I can sit down with and formulate, I suppose, in my mind, the vision that I, of, of how I saw myself and how I wanted to portray myself and whether I had to do that in terms of just like really hard work or uh, whether it was just kind of getting, I suppose, um, a little bit of luck by getting right to the top early. It was just how that could possibly be done. It was hard work, the route that I had to take. Um, I didn't know where to go, who to phone, what to do. I literally just got on my laptop one night, got on Google, and just started typing in talent agencies. And uh, I, I got about five different talent agencies and, um, and just rang them and just was like, you know, I, I, in my mind, I just reached for the stars, really. I kind of went like, you know, David Beckham's, Lewis Hamilton, who, who looks after all these top stars uh, and who manages them. Uh, a lot of the people kind of got back to me and was like, look, thank you, but, you know, we're not taking in uh, on any talent at all. A lot of people were like, yeah, we don't mind taking you on, but we want a fee of X, Y, and Z to take you on per per month, which I wasn't prepared to do. And then thankfully, MNC Saatchi Merlin, who, um, who look after me now, got back to me. Um, the, um, you know, the manager, they, uh, Katie and Richard Thompson, were responsive, very responsive and very positive, I suppose, about seeing me. Because it was, it was kind of getting a bit like, oh, my God, this is not going to go well. You know, no Jermaine, no Jermaine, not interested, you know, that not for me. Uh, and then they kind of said, look, come in, we'll have a chat. And, you know, from that moment on, really, it was just like, right, how do you see yourself? What do you want to do? And we started formulating a plan. And the basis of it all was just, you know, work hard. I was doing ITV, Europa League. I was doing... Uh, bits of BBC when I could, five live co-commentary, I was doing Sky Sports, I was doing BT, I was doing absolutely everything I possibly could. I was away from home more than I was at home, you know, you know and coming from being a player was weird, but that was important to me. I needed, I needed a routine, I needed to, to stay, stay active because I felt myself kind of drifting towards a darker place when I was just sat there mm-hmm. kind of doing nothing and not having any purpose really. I've always had purpose in my life from the age of seven. Got to be training even on a Tuesday, Thursday, and then going full time as a pro, training every day, getting told where to go, what to do, what to eat. Um, and then it was just just like white noise, just, just pure silence in terms of just like there's nothing happening in my life. So it was it, I I had that. I was lucky I had good people around me, but like I said, I, and, and what I always try to advise people that even feel like getting close to that place, especially athletes, is just be active, be proactive. Don't be too proud to pick up the phone, ask for help, ask for a job, ask for, you know, to keep yourself busy, keep yourself, for me, it was just to keep around the game. And, um, you know, within that, I found some comfort and um, went on from there. Do you think the the uber-level players are, are good at that, at being proactive? I mean, a, a lot has been taken care yeah. of for them. So you think they're good at starting to rummage around? And also, JJ, isn't there an adjustment? Because presumably broadcast money at first is nowhere near what mm. you're getting as a footballer. So yeah. there's a bit of a kind of, I suppose, ego, pride, all that stuff comes yeah. into it. What the, why, why am I getting paid this? I'm getting used to getting paid that. Don't, doesn't that go through your head too? It does, Um I do think a large part of what helps is if you've done some form of planning throughout your life, throughout my career. I was quite fortunate, really, with regards to um, some decisions I made. I was less fortunate with other, other decisions that I that like I'd Investment, made. business, Correct, that kind yeah. of stuff? With, with a lot of investments, you know, uh, may have gone wrong. Um, some investments went great. When I met my now wife, um, 
she was brilliant. Um, she's always kind of been involved in property herself and was very much like, look, this is, we need to start thinking about the future. We've got children and so on and so forth. And uh, we don't take things seriously, footballers, in a weird way. We think it's going to last forever. And um, what it did, it you know, that being, I suppose, proactive in terms of the, the investments and the financial side of things, as well as me starting my own business, you know, back in 2008, which was it's an education recruitment business supplying teachers to schools. Um, it's called Aquinas Education, um, which every time I tell people, they're just like, what? You know, why, where, when? You know, how does that happen when you're a footballer? Um, but all of those things that I, that I, I suppose, acquired at that particular time just bought me a bit of time and a bit more, I suppose, freedom in terms of being able to say, I don't, I don't care what you pay me right now. Um, I, I just want to prove to you that I am good at my job. Mm. Um, I think one of the first kind of calls I had was um, well, that I kind of put out there was to Sky Sports and it was along the lines of, you know, they offered me something like Burton Albion versus, I don't know, they were like League One, League Two at the time, Burton Albion versus somebody. And the worst part was the game was on television and they didn't even offer me the television game. They offered me the role of the guy that's in the sh uh, on the panel with the headset on telling people what was happening on the game. And I'm like, but the game's live. And they're like, yeah, well, we've got someone for the game. So I'm like, well, you can't even get me a League One gig, you know, and I'm, I've played the Premier League basically my whole life, played for England, and that's what you're offering me. And they're like, well, that's what we've got. And I said, okay, I'm going to go a different route then. And, um, you know, that's when I started really just working hard, research, and finding out what my niche was really. And my niche was that I was young and that I knew a lot of the players and that, I was going to call it from a point of view of the dressing room rather than just to please the fans. Yeah, and and it's been one heck of a USP because mm. it, it, it's gone off into the stratosphere yeah. in a short period of time because let's be frank with you, a lot of people, footballers, come out of the game mm. and think they're going to go in the media because yeah. they've had a little taste of it, they've done a game here and there, they've got their 1,200 quid, 1,500 quid, whatever it is, yeah. and they think, oh, all I need is, mm. is 30 of those a year. But it doesn't work out like that for yeah. the vast majority. No, I think a lot are shocked um, by how difficult it actually is um, the job. I think when you're a player and you turn up, it's, it's it's very easy because most of the broadcasters are very happy just to have you. You know, you're a current player. Mm. Um, you know, I, I think when I was playing, well, as an example, when I was playing for Tottenham, I ruptured my Achilles. Sky Sports kind of rang me, oh, can you come and do this, you know, game live on Sky Sports against Norwich, Tottenham v Norwich. Obviously, I've got all the insight that they need because I'm in the dressing room Monday to Friday. I'm with the lads. I know the feel. So the job's easy. Mm. Um, but then, obviously, once I stopped playing, it was very much, oh, we've got Burton Albion on a headset, which, you know, the game's live, but we don't care. You do that. And, and that, that was the difference from being a player to being retired and actually going into the field. The technical elements of working in the media, um, I, I felt like I just picked up pretty quick. I felt like I've always felt quite comfortable in front of a camera with regards to interviews. I've always been a person that, you know, when, when I when I see certain players get interviewed, it frustrates me because I just think, why can't you just talk? It's, you know, if you don't want to answer a question, there's nothing wrong with saying I'd rather not talk about that. Um, I think players have got themselves into this uh, place, which I think the media put on them and the the worry of every single word being taken out of context that... Um, the freedom's gone. Yeah, the freedom has gone. And there's more fear now in the words that maybe players want to use that maybe not allowed to use. I think that's what's great about players like Danny Rose. 
And don't get me wrong, players like Danny Rose, I think there'll be a lot of people, players included, that think, oh, I don't know, he's moaning again, or God, how many cuddles do you need? How much love do you need? Well, actually, he's doing the right thing. You know, he has openly suffered with um, mental health. He was fortunate enough to have people around him that recognised that, and he took the appropriate steps to get himself back into a good place. Um, And it's the talking element that I, I keep going back to. It's just that too many players, I don't know whether they feel that they can't articulate their words well enough, which is fine. Um, you know, it was, in my mind, do more reading. You know, just just read more. Read everything. Read whatever you need to read to kind of get yourself to that level. Um, but he, and you're not going to be perfect. I'm not perfect. Trust me, I've come off match of the day and the grammar police, they, they fully come after you. I've had, <laughs> I, you know what's weird? <laughs> going a bit off piece there. I've, uh, I, I've got, I think, two or three schools in terms of my business, going back to the business, I've got two or three um, yeah, uh, schools come to my business on the basis of it starting from them almost having a go at me because of my grammar on match of the day. So then I would open <laughs> that dialogue up and go, oh, you know, obviously really sorry, sorry, blah, blah, blah. You know, I'd love to come in and have a chat with you. And, and then I'll go in, have a coffee. And then before you know it, they're, they're working for me. <laughs> or oh, you're supplying them with supply yeah, teachers. Yeah, yeah, I'm supplying with supply teachers. We get on great. And then I got to really understand very much in terms of the support needed, really. You see, if you've been top-level football, you're in a very different scenario Mm. to most Olympians, to Mm. a lot of lower-league sports people who maybe haven't made their money. But there is still always going to be that that psychological need, that need to be fulfilled, that need to have Mm. purpose in your life, isn't it? So do do you as individuals, do the clubs that you play for, do agents, do the stakeholders need to do more to prepare you for life after sport, even when you've made fortunes? Um, In a weird way, it's almost like the more money you make, the more care you need. I think football in particular, we are, the majority, I would say probably 80% of footballers are from working class backgrounds, um, you know, a lot of single parent families, and you end up supporting the family at a very young age. I, I think... You know, I don't want to get them in trouble for doing this, but I know pretty much that Nottingham Forest were paying the mortgage on my mum's house when I was like 14, 15 years old because they saw something in me. My mum was on benefits, working God knows how many jobs just to get me boots. Um, I was like the man of the house at the age of you know 12 because my, you know, my dad had left. I've got a great relationship with him. You know, It wasn't a situation where we don't talk or I don't see him, but it was very much the responsibility was on my shoulders to make sure that mortgage was paid by playing football at the age of 13, 14, if, you know, and if I didn't make it, I don't know what would have happened. Mm. It was pressure, but it was pressure that I enjoyed. The care element is vastly important because not only are you not prepared, no matter how much kind of um, money you make or kind of wherever you finish, the, the element of just kind of feeling purpose some form of purpose in your life life retiring at 35 is just not normal in any walk of life you know when i say to people when people talk to me they go what do you do and i go retired they're like what do you mean you've retired how old are you and i'm like well you know i was 31 when i retired um you know the concept of that just doesn't make sense you've got so much more to to, to you know to, to do with your life one of the big elements with regards to um the care that i think the clubs the pfa the fa need to implement more is 
when I was playing, the amount of people they let into the football club, which is, you know, it's essentially a sacred space. You know, financial advisors, property people, car people, jewellery people. Um, it was just, you know, it's a bit of a free-for-all, really. And you end up kind of jumping on the bandwagon a little bit when you're young. Oh, he's buying a watch. I'll buy a watch. Or he's buying this. Oh, what property scheme are you getting involved in? Yeah, I'll buy one of those. Just not even knowing because you think, well, he's in it. I'm in it. And that's how they make a lot of the money, these, mm. you know, these uh, finance people. So um, without really even knowing what you're doing with your money, you've got so much of it that you just kind of start throwing it around on what you think are good investments, but not really. You know, they might not be great investments. So that level of kind of internal care almost that the club should have in place, which I think there's a better structure now, definitely, than, than there used to be. It literally you used to walk into the canteen to try and have your, your lunch after a game. And someone had tapped you on the shoulder with a, a you know a leaflet of cars and watches and you know x y it was just what crazy about your soul jj what about that you the holistic side of you and yeah. it's all right looking after your your bricks and mortar or yeah. your fibers and your bones but mm. what's going on inside and your and yeah. your head we you were know? Le- we were left to kind of figure it out on our own really um that it the bottom line of it clem is that it was seen as weakness it was see, you know, if you if if I would have gone to see any of my managers during my career and said, look, I'm just feeling sad, I'm not feeling great, or you know, it would have just been deal with it, man up and deal with it because, you know, you're in a football team, you're going to war essentially every Saturday, and you know that that conversation didn't really um, take place. I was actually, again, quite fortunate with Nottingham Forest. They were very forward thinking when I was when I was younger. They kind of started this whole. They called it kind of the Ajax project where they'd come and get us from school and at like one o'clock, 12 o'clock, take us to Nottingham Forest. We'd train and then we'd do some schoolwork and then we'd train again in the evening. So it was a way of getting more training into us, more football to, you know, get our levels up. And um, Paul Hart was very good with uh, the financial element of it. I had to go and show him my savings every single month. When I wanted to buy a car, I had to sit down and tell him what car I wanted to buy, and he had to approve it. Um, and then also, he always had a. Um, he was your academy boss or your he was or my, manager at the time. He was both. So he's my academy boss, and then he eventually became the first team boss. He took over from David Platt, who gave him my debut. But he also always had um, a psychologist in to kind of speak with us. For some reason, when I was playing around Christmas time, I always kind of just started playing poorly, and. Um, I would go and see, you know, this psychologist. And not only was I pay, playing poorly, there was there was reason behind it. Like, I was getting frustrated. You know, my manager would shout at me. I'd shout back at him. I was doing things that were not normal to me, where he would go, you don't usually act like that. What's going on with you? And I, don't, I, didn't, I couldn't put my finger on it. And, and kind of have, having sat down with a psychologist, he really, he really helped me through those moments. Unfortunately, and this is kind of on my own back, I kind of, once you start progressing really quick, and it was like, right, First team Forest, then I went to Newcastle playing for England. I'm like, I don't need him anymore, and you think you don't, but the reality is, you will. I think it's always good to have somebody just to kind of have you know open up your mind to and um, you know speak your thoughts on how you're feeling because it's the part of the body. We train every part of our body apart from our mind, every single part. I'll go to the gym, work on my physique. I'll go and run to get you know better aerobic capacity. Never really did I sit there and go right, you know, from a mental point of view, how can I become stronger? You expect. You expect to become mentally strong or your base people's mental strength on, oh, we scored that penalty in that um, semi-final, that, that winning penalty. He must be mentally strong because he, he, he stood up and took that penalty or he came through that big moment. That's why he's mentally strong. When the reality is he's not. It's just 
that's how footballers determine mental health in a weird way. Just, you know, they look at a person's career and go, oh, he did that in that big moment, so he must be really mentally strong. Whereas he could have been bluffing it out. Well, he might be going home and, you know, crying into his pillow in, in, in a completely dark place and, as you say, just bluffing it out. So it, that is the biggest, um, you know, part, I suppose, of, of my era and, and, and pre, you know, my era that wasn't cared for, which thankfully now is becoming more prominent because of players like Danny speaking up on it. Yeah, and, and, and just to, to cap off and to finish with that, you were part of the programme, a, a Royal Team Talk, with mm. the Duke of Cambridge. I mean, obviously, geared heavily towards the population, that's yeah. part of the emphasis, yeah. but it must send messages back to the game as well to see such prominent footballers or former footballers sitting around talking about these issues. I think that was the most prominent thing about it. Um, the minute... You know, we had some fun earlier on the day. We surprised a few um, local lads that had, you know, suffered some form of mental health. Um, one of the lads I was having a good conversation with had been in a car accident where he, he was paralysed. Half of his body was paralysed and he was playing at the time. Um, a decent player. He had to kind of go down a different road, ended up in the in a kind of boxing world doing training. Um, and... You know, that was kind of the, the nice element and I suppose the not the more expected but it kind of uplifted the story a little bit. The minute we walked into that kind of dressing room setup and you know I'm sat right next to Prince William and Gareth Southgate and Thierry's in there and Crouchy and we just kind of went it, the mood changed completely and it was like an open forum to just have a discussion. And you hear things and um that you didn't expect to hear. People are kind of um talking about experiences that I suppose they may not have spoken about uh, previously. Um, you know, you, you know, you kind of speak in that room weirdly enough more than I may have spoke with some of my best friends. So uh, it was being filmed as well. Yeah, and it was really refreshing. You just didn't feel. I mean, I don't know whether it's just my kind of media kind of the way I've just been desensitized to a camera now that I just didn't feel it. But it is very much just. It felt really nice. It felt comfortable that we was all able to sit there and have this discussion and open ourselves up. Um, um, with regards to kind of our so-called weaknesses um, because we all did and you know the, the program um, is great I know people you know are loving it and are going to love it if they haven't seen it because it's it's one of those situations where I feel that the discussion that we were having would allow people to go actually yeah I, even if it's one person to kind of go you know I, I, I'm feeling something I would like to talk to somebody that it might change their life because you know I know being in that room and speaking to the lads it changed theirs and it, it had an impact on mine 100%. That's it for this edition of Blood, Sweat and Fears. We're always recording new episodes so do please listen out for news of future guests. All the episodes are available on iTunes and via the EY website by visiting ey.com forward slash UK forward slash PAS forward slash podcast please do rankers raters and sharers for more information about the program itself please visit our website that's ey.com forward slash uk forward slash personal performance program thanks again to jermaine genus and to scott i'm mark Clement, brought to you by ey building a better working world thanks for listening to the latest episode of blood sweat and fears the ultimate podcast with a focus on athlete experiences readiness and preparation for life in and out of sport goodbye